Please join me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We continue on today in our sermon series on the Apostle John's first epistle or letter to the church. And we talked last week about how the fact that this is a Catholic epistle, a Catholic letter, in the sense that it was written to the entire church. And so St. John is here giving instruction to the entire church as someone who sat at Christ's feet. It's also important as we look at this passage to realize how John writes. Have you ever been confused reading the Johannine, the John epistles? Have you ever been confused reading St. Paul's epistles? Well, John has a different way of writing than Paul, which can be equally confusing. Whereas Paul seems to write in run-on sentences, um, at least in English, it's not that way necessarily in the Greek, um, St. John has a different method. And here in the 21st century, we're used to reading linearly. So we read A plus B equals C. St. John's way of writing is a more ancient way. It's actually a Hebraic way. It comes from the Old Testament. He writes in what's best described as the spiral method. The spiral method. What does that mean? Well, he takes a theme and develops the theme. He hits like themes that have to do with it and then comes back to that same theme. So if you look at the first chapter and the second chapter today, you're going to see that going on. That's important as we look at second, the second chapter, uh, beginning with verse 7, that we're reading today. So again, if you weren't here last week, there's a couple, or there's three um, points that St. John continually gets back to in this letter, in that spiral method. Number one, that belief cannot be separated from action. Number two, that goodness cannot be separated from truth. And number three, that Christ's atonement on the cross was enough. All right? The other recurring themes are themes of love, belief, and righteousness. So you'll be seeing those coming up again and again. And St. John forcefully rebuffs the arguments of people who have slipped into the church and started proclaiming a false gospel. And that false gospel says that belief can be separated from action, right? Or goodness can be separated from truth. Or that somehow Christ's blood upon the cross was not enough. Okay? Does that make sense? So he's coming against a belief system, but he's stating a belief system as well. All right. Look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. We'll go through the text together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. He writes to the church 
Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Let's stop there for a moment. That's the end of verse 8. Are you confused yet? (laughs) He said, I'm not giving you a new commandment, but then he goes on to speak about a new commandment. What gives, John? (laughs) What are you talking about? John's referring here to the ancient commandment, which is why it's not new. The ancient commandment comes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's actually the summary of the law that we read when we do the service of Holy Communion. You'll, you'll recognize it immediately when I start saying it to you. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So you see, Jesus restates that commandment in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, but he's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Deuteronomy. So that's not a new commandment. And this is what St. John's referring to here, why it's an old commandment to them. But what about the new commandment that he references? Well, Jesus restates that and takes it and applies it in the New Covenant also in reference to himself because Jesus defines what it means to love. Jesus defines what it means to love. It was in the Gospel lesson that Father Joshua read for us today. John 13, verse 34. I'm sure it's familiar to you. A new commandment I give to you, says Jesus, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So that's the new commandment. So here's what St. John's referring to when he speaks about commandments here. And St. John is giving us a test. Look at verses 9 through 10. He says in his epistle, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What St. John here is doing is saying, look, Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus has given us this new commandment, echoing the old commandment, to love one another. Jesus has shown us what that love means. Christians, Christ followers, you cannot say you're a Christian and not act in, in accordance and in obedience with the Lord of your faith. Do you see that theme coming again? Which theme of those three was that? That... Belief cannot be separated from action. Do you see? And here is a test that the Christian can apply to himself. 
he can ask himself, is there hatred in my heart? Is there hatred in my heart? Hatred is spiritual darkness. The Greek word for this used here is miseo. It means to hate, to detest, to persecute. No Christian can do that and have Christ living in him at the same time. Light and darkness are not compatible. Did you ever go down into the basement or a crawl space or your attic with no windows and strike up a match or light your lighter or maybe turn on a flashlight? What happens to the darkness? It gets driven away, right? Darkness is the absence of light. And where light is, darkness cannot be. And so what St. John is here saying is that where Christ is, hatred cannot be in the soul. And vice versa. But what is hatred? St. Thomas Aquinas gives us a helpful definition. He's a a, um, theologian from the 13th century, and he writes that hatred is actually an internal movement of the soul, like anger or like lust. Hatred is an internal movement of the soul, like anger or like lust. Think about how that works in our hearts and in our souls. How does that work? We encounter a situation or a person, and what? Our soul is moved one way or the other, right? It can be moved by lust. It can be moved by anger. It can be moved by hatred. But we don't have to choose to entertain that movement of the soul. That's where sin comes in. When we make the choice to entertain and choose hatred or malice, we sin, and we sin in a deadly way. It's important here to understand there's a distinction between sinful desires and actually committing a sin, right? So think about it. A sinful desire is hatred, but we can resist that sinful desire and not fall into sin. When we choose to entertain it, we fall into sin. You can apply the same thing to lust. You can apply the same thing to all all the deadly sins, right? It's how the soul works. It's helpful to understand this because it's a good tool looking at ourselves and examining our own hearts. Like all sinful desires, we can choose the darkness or we can choose the light. We can choose spiritual darkness, or we can choose Jesus Christ's light. And the consequences of what we choose actually don't just affect what we do, they affect what we believe and who we become. Because the soul is malleable. It's plastic in the old sense of the word. It can be molded, right? So the more you choose sin, the more the soul becomes inclined to vice of all sorts. 
Hatred, however, is particularly bad because it actually hurts not just the moral part of the soul, it hurts the intellectual part of the soul. Do you know that hatred, according to St. John and the book of Proverbs, causes blindness? We're not speaking about physical blindness, but it causes spiritual, intellectual blindness. Look at what what was read in Proverbs 14.17. There's this stumbling that happens when hatred is entertained. It causes a person to stumble, not just in his faith, but in his assessment of the situation around him. And so it's a sin that hurts the offender at least as much as it hurts the one being offended. What I mean by that is the hater is hurt by his own hatred at least as much as those who are being hated. That sin warps us. Again, Aquinas writes on the subject, he says that hatred is perhaps more grievous of a sin because it wounds and hurts not just one's neighbor, but it disorders a man's soul. And it hurts the very root of who we are created to be. He goes on to explain that, that, that other hurts can be undone, but it's much harder to undo the habits of the soul. Perhaps some of you remember this has actually come up in some of our cultural, in some of our conversation recently. Do you remember at the funeral of George H.W. Bush, the former president, um, one of our statesmen senators, Alan Simpson, gave a eulogy and he quoted this short maxim. He said, hatred corrodes the container that it's carried in. Do you remember that? Maybe you didn't see it. If you didn't, it's very profound. Hatred corrodes the container that it's carried in. That's just a short way of saying what St. Thomas Aquinas is here saying. If we are honest, we can see that blindness and persistency in human beings and perhaps ourselves. In St. John's time, the church was wrestling with this issue because people were saying that they were Christians and Christ followers, and yet they were hating their brothers and sisters. John here is giving Christians this test, and it's a quite a simple test. Ask yourself, do I hate my brother? And if you do, you are in danger of hating your Lord. Do I hate my brother? Equals, I'm not following Jesus, if the answer is yes. So this is a test to administer to ourselves. It's also a test to apply to proclaimers of the false gospel. Where there is hate, there is not Jesus Christ. If we see people who deny a connection between belief and practice, we need to be cautious because the light of truth cannot coexist with spiritual hatred. I believe this passage is very relevant to our times as well. We chose to go through 1 John before any of the current events started. And we've stuck with 1 John, I think, because in God's divine providence, he set up this passage to come up at this time in our lives as a church and as a nation. As we look around, we see racism on display. It's a particular type 
of hatred. It's a hatred that looks at our fellow man, looks at our brother or sister, and groups that person by skin color and somehow makes the, the assumption that because of that, they are not worthy of being a fellow human being, or they're somehow less than a fellow human being. That somehow they're not worth all of the things that God has made us for. That is a particular form of hatred. But it's not anything new. All human beings are susceptible to it. In fact, anyone who knows history knows that if it's not the skin color, then it's religion or ethnicity or whether you're circumcised or not, as we see in the Bible, right? There's all sorts of hatred that is manifested throughout the scriptures. The problem is in the human heart. It's a problem of original sin, and it's never going away. That's the bad news. At least this side of glory. We need to strive against it. We need to combat it in ourselves, in our hearts and souls. We need to combat it where we run across it in our interactions with people. But realize, friends, that it is part of original sin. It is part of that terrible inheritance that we all have from Adam's disobedience. All cultures have engaged in it. Christ's love combats it. But there's another point, too, and that is that Christ's blood washes it clean. As we come to the end of this verse, look with me at verses 12 through 14. I want to read it again to you, and I want you to see if you can pick out what is common to all these things that St. John is writing. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, while you're thinking about that, when we were at the end of verse 11, St. John has put the hammer down, hasn't he? He's called people out in the church and outside of the church. He said, look, if this the light, he has preached the law. But here is the gospel. Do you see it? Which point is St. John spiraling back to here? He's spiraling back to the point that Christ's atonement, once made upon the cross, is sufficient. And that their identity is not found in hatred, 
even though they might be struggling with it, but rather it's found in Christ. Commentator and Presbyterian pastor James Boyce makes the point that the hearers of John's letters might, at this point, be questioning whether they themselves are really believers. And maybe you find yourself asking that too, if you're honest, saying, well, wait, I engage in some of these things. But here is the gospel. What is John doing? What is he saying? Has anybody come up with it? What's common to verses 12 through 14, to all the groups? If you had to sum it up, what would you say? Uh-huh. There's a statement of fact that they already know, and this is encouragement. This is reassurance. This is St. John saying, you are your sins are forgiven. You know him. You have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong. He abides in you. You have overcome. How can St. John say that in the past tense? Because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross has already established these things. It's already won the victory. And when they are, if they are in Christ Jesus, they have that victory. They are those things. Even though we're in a process of being made holy, Christ's righteousness has been given to them and has been given to you and me. This is the certain hope of the gospel found here in the epistle. St. John is echoing St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which St. Paul, by the way, wrote the second uh, letter to the Corinthians some 30 years before this letter, most scholars think. But think back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17, verse 17, where St. Paul writes, Therefore, anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Isn't that good news? That is the gospel, that in Christ we've been made new, and we continue to be made new. If we look closely, what he's saying here is actually, once again, back at verse 8. Look what he says at verse 8. Again, we're going back in the text, talking about the commandments. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. Look what he says next, though. Which is true in him, that is Jesus, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Do you see? There's the spiral method on display once again. All who have been baptized and born in the Holy Spirit are works in progress. When I was young, I used to listen to, um, I think it was a, a record called High God. And one of the songs on that was um, Kids Under Construction. I don't know, does anybody remember that? I'm dating myself uh, to the, probably the mid-80s. But, but the words went, kids under construction, God isn't finished yet. <laughs> right? 
So the victory's been won, but the sanctifying is still being done. There's plenty of room for a Christian to examine himself, and we ought to do so. We need to see where our sins are. We need to see where the darkness resides in our hearts. We need to ask ourselves, are there places where hatred exists in my heart, where despising somebody else, whether it's another race or our brother, as we see in Cain and Abel in the Old Testament from the beginning, or some other reason? Is there hatred in my heart? And notice, hatred is not disagreeing with somebody but it's actually the opposite of love. It's actually not wanting what's best for the person. And we have to ask ourselves, do I have that? Or do I have Christ in my heart? What does Christ define his love as? He says, I have loved you. How does Christ love us? He gave himself as an offering upon the cross. Greater love hath no man than he who lays down his life for his friends, says Christ. So which is it? They can't both be in us. But we also need to reject the idea that we stand guilty. We need to reject the idea that somehow, as Christians, we walk around with shame or guilt. Because St. John rejects that idea. If you've repented, your sins have been forgiven. And even if you haven't repented, Those sins have been paid for, and you need to avail yourself of the forgiveness. As you continue to walk in the light of Christ, you can hold your head high. And St. John says you need to hold your head high because you're a citizen of a world to come and not of this world. Look, exactly that's exactly where he goes in verse 15. Do not love in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. Again, that's a pretty, pretty direct message, right? The love of God's not in you. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides in him forever. Love of this world and what this world defines as love, the justice of this world and what this world defines as justice are passing away. They're incomplete. They can never be complete because they can never completely um, undo the effects of original sin, or original sin itself. This world is all about the desires of the flesh. It's all about the desire of pride. It's all about power. God's kingdom is not. Indulging this world is simply inviting darkness right back in, in a different way. It's short-sighted and dangerous. Rather, as Christians, we're called to love God and love one another, to desire what's best for one another. And what is best for one another? To reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit can redeem and restore. And while the bad news is that this world will never be perfect, the good news is 
that this world is passing away and the world to come will be. God's perfect love, God's perfect justice will and will be manifested as all things are made new. So, as we walk forth from this place today, what ought we, to, what, what ought we do? Well, number one, we need to remember that conduct and belief are connected. We need to remember that our lives in Christ Jesus need to look like the love of Christ Jesus. When we're on Facebook, when we're in conversations with one another, when we're meeting with our friends or family, there's no room for darkness. But when you sin, and you will, your sins have been covered by Jesus Christ. Goodness cannot be separated from truth, and Christ's atonement has made you new. So let us walk forth with that knowledge. Let us take the words of St. John and Christ and apply them to our lives. Let us examine ourselves, yes, but let us remember that our identity is not of this world, but in the one to come. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.